This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Please visit calcedon.edu to purchase this book. The title of this book is Systematic Theology in Two Volumes by Rusas John Rushduni. Copyright 1994. Ross House Books. Chapter 2. The Necessity for Systematic Theology. Section 1. The Necessity for Systematic Theology. Last Saturday, while traveling to Los Angeles, I listened on my car radio to an evangelist broadcasting from the other end of the country. While claiming to preach the Word of God as a Bible-believing Christian, he preached a faith I could not recognize as scriptural, nor the God I hear speak in the Bible. This man assured his converted and unconverted listeners that God is always on your side. He also spoke of God as our Daddy in heaven rich in resources and eager and anxious to help us if we only would allow him to do so. I could not recognize in what he preached the sovereign God of Scripture, nor anything that resembled his commanding word, the Bible. The evangelist was a humanist who was using, or trying to use, God as the greatest possible resource available to man. Central to his thinking was man and man's needs. He lacked any systematic theology of God. Instead, There were traces in his brief message of a theology of man as the true center and the God of things. Very briefly, systematic theology says that God is God. It declares that, because God is sovereign, omnipotent, all-wise, all-holy, and knows from eternity all that he ordains and decrees, therefore there is no hidden possibility or potentiality in God, but that God is both fully self-conscious and totally self-consistent. Only with such a God is systematic theology possible. Wherever faith in the sovereignty of God declines, there too systematic theology goes into an eclipse. The word systematic in systematic theology means, among other things, first, that it is a comprehensive, unified statement of what Scripture as a whole teaches about God. The revelation of God in Scripture is brought together in summary and comprehensive form, and the results of biblical theology the exegesis and analysis of Scripture and its meaning are organized and set forth. Second, the word systematic means that the totally sovereign God, who does not change, Malachi 3.6, is truly knowable. He is always the same. Men change character, grow and regress, but God is always the same, totally self-consistent, and absolutely sovereign. Only about such a God is a systematic word possible. This is why modern theology cannot produce systematics. Karl Barth's position was a denial of the possibility of systematics. Thus, he wrote, But it is not the Almighty who is God. We cannot understand from the standpoint of a supreme concept of power who God is, and the man who calls the Almighty God misses God in the most terrible way. For the Almighty is bad, as power in itself is bad. The Almighty means chaos, evil, the devil. We could never better describe and define the devil than by trying to think this idea of a self-based, free, sovereign ability God and power in itself are mutually exclusive. God is the essence of the possible, but power in itself is the essence of the impossible. Barth's God is not the God of Scripture who declares, I am the Almighty God, Genesis 17.1. Barth's God is a limiting concept, the product of a man's imagination. Barth gives us only a systematic exposition of his unbelief 
He cannot give us a systematic theology of the God of Scripture. Similarly, Heratonian held that systematic theology was impossible because such a doctrine of God cannot do, quote, justice to the complexities of human life, end quote. The center of Harotunian's theology is human life. The God of Scripture cannot, in any degree nor in any sense, impinge on the sovereignty of autonomous man. Hence, for him, systematic theology is an illusion, because the God of systematic theology is by definition excluded from all consideration. Third, systematic means that the presupposition of theology is not the mind of autonomous man, but the sovereign God of Scripture. Systematics, no more than apologetics, seeks to prove God and His existence. Rather, it presupposes the triune God as the only ground and means of reasoning and proof, as Van Til has so excellently demonstrated. Quote, All the disciplines must presuppose God, but at the same time presupposition is the best proof. End quote. On any other presupposition, if logically followed, no proof is at all possible, because all reality is reduced to brute factuality, as Van Til has shown. Instead of brute and meaningless factuality, all the universe gives us God-created factuality only, and hence the necessary presupposition of all thinking is the triune God. Fourth, as Van Til has always stressed, systematics denies the concept of neutrality. There are no neutral facts, no neutral thoughts, no neutral man, nor reason. All men, facts, and thinking either begin with the sovereign and triune God, or they begin with rebellion against him. Systematics affirms that God. The denial of systematics is a denial of God. Fifth, systematics is necessary if men are to think intelligently and logically. Without the concept of systematics and the God it sets forth, we cannot hold to a rational and understandable universe, nor to any meaningful order therein. Unregenerate man's reason and logic operate against the background of chaos and a meaningless void, so that reason and logic are in essence more than irrational they are absurd. Systematics not only makes reason reasonable, but it declares that there is a necessary and meaningful connection between all facts, because all facts are the creation of the sovereign and omnipotent God, and are thus revelations of His purpose and order. The idea of preaching the whole counsel of God is only a possibility if systematics is a reality. Otherwise, there is no necessary and real connection and unity in the Word of God, and we have instead a developing, changing word and plan under different dispensations. We have then a fragmented word, not a whole council which is a necessary and authoritative unity. Thus, without systematics there is no word of God, and, indeed, no such God as His revelation in Scripture sets forth. We have then another God, with an occasional word which is made up of flashes of insight, and of superior powers to man, but no absolute, almighty, and sovereign God whose every word is infallible and whose revelation manifests the only possible system of truth. This living God declares, I am God, and there is none else. Isaiah 46, 9 There is no other God, no other truth, no other possibility, system, or meaning outside of Him. He is God, the Lord. Section 2. Causality and Systematics The Greeks, no less than biblical thought, held to the idea of causality, but with a difference. The Greek concept of causality was closely tied to its belief in potentiality. All being was held to be full of potentiality, so that new developments in being were always possible. Luke tells us in Acts 17.21, 
For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new things. The new was very important to these Greek philosophers, teachers, and students. It was an, an indication of the next step in being, perhaps, a glimpse into the areas of possibility. As Van Til notes, quote, They believed in the mysterious universe. They were perfectly willing, therefore, to leave open a place for the unknown. But this unknown must be thought of as utterly unknowable and indeterminate, end quote. For Greek philosophy, there was no determined character to the created universe because they did not believe in the absolute sovereign and predestinating God. Their idea of causality thus simply held that there was a connection between contextual events, but it denied that any sovereign person, plan, and decree created and determined those events. Much later, as a result of Christian influence and scholarship, the idea of natural or physical laws developed. This concept held that whether in physics, chemistry, biology, or any other area of study, certain patterns of connection indicated an overall law which necessitated a determined pattern of events. This presupposed a universe, not a multiverse, and a fixed and predetermined law governing all creation. The Greeks could see ideas or patterns within creation, but no fixity or necessary and continuing pattern. On Greek terms, therefore, a systematic theology was impossible. At best, any system noted had to be tentative and temporal, not eternal and binding. Thus, as the Greek mind faced the early church, it had one basic idea which had fixity. It held that systematics must be by definition ruled out and an open universe retained. New potentiality had to be allowed, and no eternal decree permitted. Thus, the biblical doctrine of the Incarnation was ruled out, because it meant that eternity determined time, and God controls history. It meant that two ultimate substances of for Greek thought, mind and matter, were alike created and absolutely controlled by God. For the word to become flesh meant that the Greek idea of being was invalid and that its philosophy was unsound, because it rested on a false premise with respect to being and potentiality. Tertullian saw this clearly and in On the Flesh of Christ, 3, declared, quote, since you think that this lay within the competency of your own arbitrary choice, you must needs have supposed that being born was either impossible for God or unbecoming to Him. With God, however, nothing is impossible, but what He does not will. End quote. For Tertullian, there is a necessary and systematic logic and coherency to all God's works, so that his idea of causality and potentiality is not grounded on the Greek idea of being and a developing potentiality, but on the sovereign, unchanging, and triune God. As a result, Tertullian declares, quote, What is written cannot but have been, end quote. When the scriptures speak, it is infallibly. It is the absolute God whose every word is truth who speaks that word. There is no possibility outside of God, nor is there any hidden or unknown potentiality within God. He is totally self-conscious and totally determines all by his perfect will. The strength of Tertullian's argument is that he grasped, however defectively applied at times, the necessary systematics of biblical theology. Greek thought combined with Christianity could at best give only a tentative systematics, and at heart it carried a denial thereof. Wherever theology began with the God of Scripture, however, it confronted the world of the pagans with systematics. In the second century, Tatian, 
schooled in Greek philosophy, turned to Christianity where he grasped the fact that it provided a systematic theology and therefore a coherent view of all things. However weak Tatian was in some areas of thought, his grasp of this fact, the necessity of systematics, is telling. Tatian wrote of his conversion from Greek philosophy through a reading of barbaric biblical writings thus, quote, And while I was giving my most earnest attention to the matter, I happened to meet with certain barbaric writings, too old to be compared with the opinions of the Greeks, and too divine to be compared with their errors. And I was led to put faith in these by the unpretending cast of the language, the inartificial character of the writers, the foreknowledge displayed of future events, the excellent quality of the precepts, and the declaration of the government of the universe as centered in one being. And my soul being taught of God, I discerned that the former class of writings led to condemnation, but that those put an end to the slavery that is in the world, and rescue us from a multiplicity of rulers and ten thousand tyrants, while they give us, not indeed what we had not before received, but what we had received, but were prevented by error from attaining." The government of the universe centered in God, Tatian found to be the foundation of both intellectual and personal freedom. It meant spiritual and material freedom, and it also meant intellectual freedom from the dead ends of Greek philosophy. As against the conclusions of such philosophy and pagan religions, Tatian declared, quote, But we are superior to fate, and instead of wandering demons, we have learned to know one Lord who wanders not, and, as we do not follow the guidance of fate, we reject its lawgivers, end quote. Tatian saw that the results of Christianity include a new life, faith, law, and society. Having another lawgiver, the Christians live in terms of another law than do the pagans. The determination of history is not from time, but eternity. Quote, Our God did not begin to be in time. He alone is without beginning, and he himself is the beginning of all things. End quote. As against the cyclical view of history, Christians hold to God's purpose, culminating in the resurrection of the dead. For Tatian, the creation of all things by God requires the government of all things by God's law. Accordingly, he declared, quote, On this account I reject your legislation also, for there ought to be one common polity for all. But now there are as many different codes as there are states, so that things held disgraceful in some are honorable in others. The Greeks consider intercourse with a mother as unlawful, but this practice is esteemed most becoming by the Persian Magi. Pederasty is condemned by the barbarians, but by the Romans, who endeavor to collect boys like gazing horses, it is honored with certain privileges. Quote. Quite rightly, Tatian saw all things at stake in the doctrine of God, for example, in the biblical view which required systematics. The doctrine of the sovereign and triune God means that there is a necessary order in the universe, that all things are interrelated and have a common key to the meaning that there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and also one law in the universe. Events do not reveal the hidden potentiality of being, but manifest purposes of the sovereign God. Man does not make and adapt laws to meet the new leaps in being, but applies the revealed law of God to all of life. Causality is personal in essence, since all things are the handiwork of God the Lord. Causality is not, as with the Greeks, the impersonal and blind outworkings of a being rife with unrealized potentialities. If we deny the possibility of systematic theology, we deny the God of Scripture. We are then on the road to denying not only theology, 
but all knowledge, because factuality has been denied its created meaning and its purpose. Section 3. The Systematics of Common Life It is commonplace in our time to stress the irrationality of man. In a very real sense, this is a valid assertion. If we view man from the perspective of some standard of reason, we hold to be necessary and true. For the Christian, the humanist is irrational. Whatever form his rationalism takes, modern, classical, Hindu, Buddhist, or any other form, for the modern humanist, all non-humanists, for example, all who are not modern scientific humanists, are thoroughly irrational. Each and every one, however, is rational in terms of his basic presupposition. Man's reasonings work out the implications of his faith so that a man's reason applies the yardstick of his faith to all things and is in essence a religious activity. In this sense, we must affirm that men are highly rational, but that their reasonings are warped because their religious premise is warped. All reasoning rests on a religious premise of faith with respect to reality. Moreover, because man is created in the image of God, even in his fallen estate, he remains aware of the implications of that image within him. He seeks to create, however, his own principles of knowledge and order, so that fallen man remains dedicated to the principle of systematics, although by denying the triune God, man has denied the foundations of systematics, he remains an incurable systems builder. He denies the validity of systematics to God in order to attempt to build a systematics of being. Man is a creature whose life is an outworking of his faith. In terms of that faith, man is logical and systematic in the basic thrust and direction of his life. Man lives in terms of what he believes, and his life is the logical and rational development of certain religious presuppositions. A telling illustration of the logic of the common man appears in a study by G. G. Colton. According to Colton, quote, In modern Sicily, among the poorest classes, an executed criminal is a saint. Petrie has noted that men pray in the name of the holly gallowbirds. This is perfectly logical. The crowd has seen a man publicly executed after partaking of the holy wafer, which would not be given to him unless he had just confessed and been absolved. His soul is, at that moment, unquestionably on the right side of the balance. Next moment he is launched into eternity. By all ecclesiastical logic, you are more certain of that man's final salvation after due purification in purgatory than of the most saintly liver whose last moments has had been less convincing. Therefore the Sicilian vulgar pray for help to those souls of the holy gallowbirds. This logic may make the theologians wince, but the fact remains that the logic of these Sicilians is faultless, if their premise be granted. Thus, in Hindu thought, the religious concern is not with the relationship between man and God, but with the realization of the nature of the self. It should not surprise us, therefore, that Hindu life is marked by a radical egoism and an unconcern for the sufferings of others. This is not because Hindus have something lacking in their makeup, but that they are logical and rational terms of their faith. Similarly, Gautama, or Buddha, the enlightened one, called for the middle way of non-involvement in life. The resultant unconcern of Buddhism with social problems is a necessary consequence of this faith. The Jain doctrine that all matter is possessed of life leads to pacifism, vegetarianism, and nonviolence, but not to love, mercy, and charity. The goal is not compassion, but a disentanglement from the pain and misery of life. The activism which Mahatma Gandhi and other imported into Hindu life was borrowed from the West. It will survive and thrive only to the degree that Hinduism is altered and dies. 
The logic of common life requires a simple connection between faith and life, a systematic connection. The sophistications of intellectuals who attempt to breed hybrids do not endure. Moreover, where systematics is absent, a vacuum does not develop. Another systematics replaces it. Thus, in the churches, many ministers never preach the whole counsel of God, or if they do, they do so in a wooden and inadequate manner. The result is that few people in the church are ever exposed to the Christian systematic theology. Their pastors are one text or one theme preachers, proclaiming salvation and little else, unless it be ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. In the absence of a systematics grounded on biblical theology, most Christians function in terms of the logic and presuppositions of their humanistic and statist education. Without systematic theology, God cannot be central in the lives of ministers and members. The church cannot flourish on alien foundations, and it has not. It is not enough to proclaim adherence to the infallible words, or to the five points of Calvinism, if such an adherence is not grounded on systematic theology. Without systematics, we have smorgasbord theology and religion. It is quickly replaced by another faith because of the logic of the common life. Van Til is right. Quote, Non-indoctrinated Christians will easily fall a prey to the peddlers of Russellism, spiritualism, and all of the other 57 varieties of heresies with which our country abounds. One-text Christians simply have no weapons of defense against these people. They may be able to quote many scripture texts which speak, for instance, of eternal punishment, but the Russellite will be able to quote texts which, by the sound of them, and taken individually, seem to teach annihilation. The net result is, at best, a loss of spiritual power because of a loss of conviction. Many times, such one-text Christians themselves fall prey to the seducer's voice. Moreover, as Van Til points out, quote, The unity and organic character of our personality demands that we have a unified knowledge as the basis of our action. End quote. If this unified knowledge is not provided by the theologians, it will be provided by someone else. Human action requires a unified knowledge. Man's being requires a systematics, and he will either live or die in terms of it. His faith will lead him to action or inaction, to suicide or life. Thus, systematics cannot be avoided. The only question is, which systematics? Every non-biblical system has collapse built into it. It rests on false premises, leads to false conclusions, and cannot give a valid and rational interpretation of the nature and purpose of life and the world. A systematic theology derived from Scripture is widely denied today as an impossibility. The reason for this is that such deniers are concerned rather with affirming another system, such as a systematic anthropology, man as creator of his own essence and lord of his own being. Such attempts, however, are a futile passion. Only a Bible-based systematics can stand and is valid. Section 4. The Coherency of Scripture there could be no systematic theology if the God of Scripture is not a coherent unity, and if His Word is not a coherent whole. An incoherent God, who has elements of unrealized potentiality in Himself, and who cannot speak a necessary infallible word, is incapable of being either the foundation of any systematic theology or of being God. Thus, those who find in Scripture only flashes of insight, and sometimes incoherent movement toward realization, see no God at all. They are simply mining a vast deposit of earth in the hopes of finding a few nuggets of gold in all that void. Systematics requires that we recognize the necessary connection between all aspects of Scripture and all forms of biblical doctrine because there is a unity in the Godhead which makes for a unity of meaning. 
we must thus see that there is a necessary unity between predestination, circumcision, and baptism. Predestination is the doctrine of the sovereignty of God in relation to all His works. All things were made by Him in terms of His sovereign purpose and counsel, and the totality of His work was determined from all eternity by no other consideration than His own sovereign will. Hence, known unto God are all His works from the beginning of the world. Acts 15.18 According to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, Question 7. What are the decrees of God? Answer. The decrees of God are His eternal purpose, according to the counsel of His will, whereby for His own glory He hath foreordained whatsoever come to pass. Ephesians 1.11 Acts 4.27 and 28 Psalms 33.11 Ephesians 2.10 Romans 9.22 and 23 and 11.33 Circumcision was the covenant sign of membership. All males were circumcised as infants on the eighth day. Genesis 17:9-4. To refuse to circumcise meant a departure from the covenant. Why the circumcision of babies? If children could not understand what the covenant meant on the eighth day of their lives, how could they then be covenant members? Circumcision witnesses to the sovereignty of God's electing grace. To baptize or to circumcise a child of eight days means simply that it is not the child's choice not an act of faith, nor personal decision that makes for salvation. It is not the act of circumcision or baptism which saves a child, but, rather, the act is a witness to our faith that salvation is not an act of man, but of sovereign grace. The secondary factors, man's duty to rear his children, in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, Ephesians 6.4, are very real. They cannot be neglected. But the early age of circumcision, and then of baptism, witnesses to the sovereignty of grace. To hold that infant baptism is not the coherent principle of doctrine in terms of predestination and circumcision is to undercut sovereign grace and to deny the validity of systematics. Similarly, the common failure to relate infant baptism to predestination is again an evidence of a lack of systematic theology. Infant baptism is commonly practiced for traditional and ecclesiastical reasons. All kinds of far-fetched attempts at justifying it doctrinally are advanced, some of which seriously undercut God's sovereignty and give power and determination to the church and its sacraments instead. Bitter reactions against such perversions are understandable and to a degree healthy, but we cannot therefore undercut the sovereignty of grace and salvation. The sovereign God does not require the age of discretion or understanding to save a man. Infants and idiots can be, and often are, by sovereign grace, made a new creation. The marks of grace are not the marks of man's understanding, but rather the handiwork of the sovereign and gracious God. While the learned and mighty planned the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the children in the temple cried out, Hosanna to the Son of David! Matthew 21, 15, and 16. If, as we are told, God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham, Matthew 3, 9, it is clear that the regeneration of babes is no problem to him. No doctrine of Scripture exists in a vacuum or in isolation from any other doctrine. The unity of doctrine rests on the unity of the Godhead. Systematic theology is the affirmation and declaration of that unity. Without systematics and by denying systematics, to cite an extreme example, some Hindu thinkers have used Christ and the Gospels as aspects of Hinduism. By denying the sovereign God of Scripture and His infallible Word, they have been able to abstract Christ and the Gospels from their context and to place them in an alien one. In the process, of course, Jesus Christ ceases to be himself, and the Gospels become alien documents. By denying in full the systematics of Scripture, 
Such Hindus are reducing Christ to a datum in their world, as one fact among many. A Christianity without a systematic theology differs from these Hindu constructs only in degree, not in kind. Section 5. The Limits of Systematic Theology Systematic theology must be rigorously biblical. Its purpose must be the development and organization of biblical theology. What the scripture manifests as revealed history, prophecy, law, and wisdom, systematic theology sets forth in systematic form. Systematic theology cannot be speculative. Speculative theology is a departure from biblical faith, whether it presents itself as reformed, Armenian, scholastic, modernist, dialectical, or anything else. Speculative theology begins not with an act of faith in the triune God, but with the presumption and an implicit denial of faith. Basic to speculative theology is the assumption that human logic can penetrate into the recesses of eternity and into every corner of the mind of God to draw certain necessary conclusions. These conclusions rest not on biblical theology, but rather on the conclusions of human logic. Logic has its good and proper functions, but the mind of God so exceeds the mind of man that it must be said that man's logic cannot go beyond its appointed and temporal task. Man's mind and logic can never play peeping Tom into the mind of God, who declares to man, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. Isaiah 55, 8. As an example of this, we have in Calvinism three schools of thought with respect to election. First, there are the superlapsarians, for whom the decree of election takes precedence over the decree of creation. Second, the sublapsarians see the decree of election contemplating man as fallen, and then God, out of the fallen mass of humanity, chooses to predestine some to eternal life. Third, the infralapsarians saw the election as at one and the same time to creation, the fall, and the redemption. The sublapsarians have in the main prevailed, and have held that infralapsarianism in effect denies the vicarious atonement, and superlapsarianism has reprobation precedes sin in the decree. A little thought makes clear the amazing audacity of all three each of which presumes to read the mind of God and chart the structure of his reasoning, as though the processes of God's mind are comparable to man's. All these positions assume a time sequence in God's thinking, a blasphemous assumption. All three positions involve a blasphemous presumption on the part of the mind of man and a projection of human thought processes into the mind of God. This kind of thinking began with the rise of Calvinistic scholasticism. Since then, many an able and godly theologian has felt duty-bound to comment on lapsarianism as one of the great exercises of theology, but, by the grace of God, not too many have developed any great enthusiasm for it. All the same, the plague of lapsarians is still with us. Another example of speculative theology is the argument about the birth of the soul, an argument which comes down to us from the early church. How is the soul of the baby in the mother's womb brought into being? First, the pre-existence held that, at the beginning of creation, God created the souls of all men, which are only united to bodies at the time of their conception or birth. Justin Martyr and Origen espoused this doctrine. 
which was later condemned in AD 540 by the Council of Constantinople. Its pagan origin was obvious, and its condemnation deserved. The poet William Wordsworth, in the ode, Intimations of Immortality from Recollections of Early Childhood, espoused it, as did other romantics. Second, the creationists insisted that every rational soul is from God by an immediate act of creation. Pelagius and others adopted this view because it separated the soul of man from the fall of Adam and left only the body as an heir to the fall. As a result, while seemingly exalting the creative power of God, this view actually exalted man and made him innocent and capable of self-salvation. In modern philosophy, Leibniz had creationist ideas. Third, Traducianism held that both soul and body were generated by the parents through the normal process of sexual reproduction. The Augustinians, Lutherans, and Calvinists have been traditionists in the main and have given the doctrine the flavor of orthodoxy. Clearly, traditionism does not have the glaring defects of the other two positions, but this is not enough to give it a clean bill of health. The argument about the generation of the soul rests, first, on presumption. Man professes to know the details of God's creative method and speaks with confidence about the mind of God when he cannot express his own will and mind with clarity or certainty. The argument is illegitimate and presumptuous. Second, the argument rests on an alien religion, Hellenism, and its view of mind and body as two separate and alien substances. Traducianism comes closer to bringing them together, but it has not challenged the premise of the argument, the presupposition of two differing substances. The difference in being for scripture is not between mind and body or soul and matter, idea and form, but between the uncreated being of God and all created being. The whole point of this argument of speculative theology is, like all speculative theology, illegitimate. In Genesis 3, in the temptation of Adam, and in Matthew 4, 1-11, the temptation of our Lord, Satan presents himself as one who can read the mind of God. This is the first great premise of the temptations. Satan's assurance that he knows and can declare the mind of God. Yea, hath God said? Genesis 3, 1. Satan offers the true reading of God's mind. Second, Satan invites man, the first Adam and the last, and all men in them, to read the mind of God, to become speculative theologians, in effect. Only so can they deal successfully with God and prosper themselves. The invitation of Satan to man is to let his mind soar into contemplation of the hidden thoughts of God. God doth know, Genesis 3.5, certain things, and Satan declares that, with some logical speculation, man can know the same. The fallacy of speculative theology is the fallacy and sin of Satan's plan and plea. Man is required to read the revelation of God, to read the word of God, not the mind of God, apart from or beyond the word. For man to know the mind of God requires a mind equal to God. The revealed word of God, which truly sets forth God's righteousness and holiness, assures us that God is true to himself. There are no contradictions in his being, so that we can fully trust his word. Man, however, as a creature, and more as a fallen creature, and thus doubly limited, does not know himself or his world fully or truly. How then can he presume to know not only the mind of God, but every jot and tittle thereof? What man is summoned to know is the revealed word of God, and himself and creation in terms of it. Speculative theology is not only presumptuous, but also barren. 
Its rise leads to the impotence of the church. Its false premises lead to a false conclusions, and to a departure from reality, and hence from the task of theology. It was Origen, a speculative theologian, who castrated himself. That act has its symbolic meaning. Speculative theology, because of its destructive nature, is the castration of theologians who embrace it. Origen began with bad theology. Greek theology with its belief in two substances. His flesh was giving him sexual problems. The answer was simple. Off with the offending flesh. To his dismay, lust continued. His bad theology had made him doubly impotent and irrelevant as well. Section 6. Abstract Theology For fallen man, it is this world which is the real world. Anything beyond the world of time and space is for him simply an idea or an abstraction. Because fallen man regards the physical universe as the real world, and usually the only world, anything which may be necessary to posit as existing beyond this world is by comparison limited, ghostly, or unreal. It becomes a limiting concept, a myth, a rational abstraction, or something similar. At the same time, the reality of the physical universe is enhanced or increased by absorbing into it whatever is necessary to make of the cosmos a self-sustaining unity. The idea of nature is the great example of this fact. Nature is seen as a complexus, which is a self-sustaining objective order with its own inherent power and workings. The worldview of the deists, despite many alterations of the framework, is the basic view of nature in ancient and modern thought. Nature is the sum total of all reality, and yet somehow not only a unity but a corporate thing possessing its own inherent or native law, development, or structure. But this nature so commonly invoked is merely an immanentist substitute for the idea of God. Nature is a collective noun used to sum up all physical reality to ascribe any law, structure, development, or power to that collective noun is to indulge in myth-making. There is, however, an urgent necessity for such myth-making in anti-biblical thought. To accept nature as merely a collective noun means that law, structure, development, and power can then be understood only by reference to another world. The God idea then becomes more than a limiting concept and an abstraction and becomes a necessity. If, however, we retain this anti-theistic point of view to any degree, to that degree our theology becomes abstract theology because our essential or primary reality is not God, but nature. We may even believe God is not dead, but real, but He will only be real enough to snatch us out of this world, not to govern and predestine both us and the world. We also have many who will affirm predestination and the sovereignty of God formally, but abstractly, because in practice their theology remains abstract. To be specific, how can anyone affirm the sovereignty of God concretely, and realistically, without opposing and denying the sovereignty of man and the state. If we affirm God's sovereignty, but do not challenge humanistic doctrines of sovereignty from the pulpit and pew, in the home, the Christian school, the voting booth, in the halls of Congress, and elsewhere, we are either denying our profession of faith, or affirming a two-worlds theory, for example, that God is sovereign in the supernatural realm, but Satan governs and triumphs in space and time. We are then not Christians, but Manichaeans. Similarly, to affirm predestination by God and to assent to socialism in any form is to say that there are two realms of predestination. God predestines the soul, and the state predestines the physical and natural life of man by its planning and control. 
Again, if we hold to an abstract form of systematics, we will talk about atonement without seeing that, apart from Christ's atonement, man will seek atonement by sadomasochistic activities. As a sadist, he will attempt to lay his sins upon other people, and as a masochist, he will attempt through self-punishment to make self-atonement. Politics, religion, marriage, and all human relationships will manifest sadistic or masochistic activities, wherever men are without Christ. For the pulpit to preach Christ's atonement, without seeing its very practical consequences of deliverance from sadomasochism and the results of a society which is dedicated to sadomasochistic works of atonement, is to hold to a Manichaean or an abstract theology. The result of such an abstract systematics is the radical irrelevance of the churches which profess it. The fact that, in the United States of the 1970s, well over 50 million adults profess to believe in Jesus Christ as born-again believers, and yet the nation drifts more strongly into the ways of humanism, is indicative of the extent to which theology has become abstract. An abstract theology is only formally or technically systematic. Systematic theology must, of necessity, deny because God is sovereign, that there are any neutral facts or any areas of neutrality. All factuality is God-created and God-governed and interpreted. All facts are therefore theological facts, and every area of life, thought, study, and action is a theological concern. Education, politics, science, the arts, the vocations, the family, and all things else are theological concerns. A theology which does not involve itself in every area in terms of the sovereign God and his infallible law word cannot be systematic. It is merely abstract. Thus, it is not enough for theology to say that the whole world was ordained and created by God, but also the whole of history and all things therein. None of it is ordained or predestined to manifest the viability of autonomy for the world, for man, or for Satan. There is no independently functioning person, thing, or realm. Thus, we must avoid the error of abstraction. It is the mark of little or no faith. God is not real for those who preach an abstract theology, or, if real, he is remote and pale in their thought. Similarly, those who immerse their theology into history have no transcendental and sovereign God. Thus, the modernists see only the world of nature as the real world. Hence, for them, the only real God is a God who is totally immanent, fully a part of the cosmos. The result is the death of theology and a turning to sociology. Both the immanentists and the abstractionists deny, to all practical intent, the living God. Both stress heavily the poetic and metaphoric nature of scripture and its language, because talk of a jealous God makes God all too real and vivid. We are therefore always cautioned by such men that, when God declares, Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them images. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Exodus 20, 5 and 6. We must understand that the language is anthropomorphic and to be seen as figurative, designed to teach. Is this so? Exodus thirty four fourteen is more emphatic. For thou shalt worship no other god, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. St. Paul speaks of idolatry in any degree as something which provokes God to jealousy. 1 Corinthians 10.22 By abstracting jealousy from God, we also abstract every other aspect which indicates personal response, so that love and hate in God are replaced by formal and technical responses. God fades steadily into an abstraction. 
We can no more comprehend the jealousy of God than we can His predestinating counsel and decree. But we must accept God as He is in His revelation in Scripture, not as He is smoothed out and reinterpreted by philosophers and theologians. If we allow their ideas about the sovereign and jealous God to govern us, we have an abstract God, and an abstract God is no God at all. Again, a God we can comprehend is no God at all. He is no bigger, if as big, than we are. The God of Scripture we cannot comprehend, for as He declares, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. We can know Him truly in His revelation, and every fact about God is totally consistent with every other, but we cannot comprehend Him or know Him exhaustively. Abstract theology seeks to reduce God to the dimensions of man's mind. Lapsarianism, as we have seen, is an example of this. Lapsarianism seeks to penetrate the mind of God and to chart his, its workings. It ends up with a minimal God who is reduced to the level of man's logic and to the temporal nature of man's thought. The roots of abstract theology are in Greek philosophy, with its belief in the ultimacy of ideas. Abstract theology makes God over into the great idea, in whom all ideas reside in one coherent and intellectual whole. This, the God of the theologically minded intellectuals, is not the living God of Scripture, but an abstraction. If we bow down before an abstraction, we bow before an image created by the mind of man, and we are idolaters. Section 7. Systematics and Possibility we have seen the dangers in speculative theology and in abstract thought. It is necessary now to look briefly at another manifestation of the same kind of evil, the question of possibility. In many theologies, a whole world of possibility exists apart from God. In fact, some professors and sometimes pastors delight in raising hypothetical questions relative to possibilities outside of God's decree. Thus, a favorite seems to be, what would happen if... After Eve submitted to the tempter, Adam had refused. What would God have done then? Similarly, the Schofield Bible notes manifest the same mentality. Thus, we are not told that Jesus, in his triumphal entry, entered Jerusalem as the messianic king, but rather that he made a public offering of himself as king, and being rejected, the cross became necessary. All such thinking involves an implicit denial of the God of Scripture, the premise concealed in these ideas is that the God revealing himself in the Bible does not exist. If God is indeed God, then all possibility exists in terms of his sovereign decree, and there is no possibility outside of God. To imagine a fall involving only Eve, or a possibility with regard to Christ's entry other than that or God ordained and brought to pass, is to deny the sovereignty of God. God is not then in control of history, but man and chance govern it. All factuality is God-created and God-ordained. Nothing exists apart from His creation and purpose, and every fact in creation is totally created, governed, and directed by the Sovereign God. Even more, every aspect of history, every moment of time, and every event therein is of God's ordination. This total predestination extends to the very hair of our heads, Matthew 10.30, and to every atom of all creation. There is no existence, potentiality, or possibility outside of God's ordination. To affirm any possibility outside of God is to affirm the ultimacy and sovereignty of chance. It means that God is not sovereign, 
and that a vast and unlimited reservoir of possibility exists outside of him. This great reservoir of possibility can at any moment limit, undercut, or alter God's purposes and deny his deity. Those who raise the question, what would happen if, after Eve submitted to the tempter, Adam had refused, what would God have done, are indignant when I object to their supposedly harmless theological exercise. But what they have done is to insist on the ultimacy of chance and its priority to and superiority over God. Chance events can impede, alter, or destroy God's purpose, and sovereignty is clearly conveyed to the great God, chance. Some theologians, who claim to believe in systematic theology, still affirm the idea of possibility outside of God. Clearly, all non-reformed theologies and humanists affirm such a doctrine of possibility. Why? Is it not in fact a fearful destiny for man to be taken out of God's sovereignty and providence and placed under chance? However hard a doctrine predestination may be, it still places us under God's total government and in a universe of total meaning. The affirmation of any possibility apart from the decree of God, on the other hand, places us in a meaningless universe and in the context of senseless events. Why do men choose such a faith and defend it passionately? The answer is that, whatever the cost, this view of possibility gives man autonomy over God. In a graveyard, the living man is king over all, and man, the sinner, prefers a graveyard without God to the Garden of Eden with God. Chance reduces his universe to senselessness, but man becomes God over this chaos. James Daane, in A Theology of Grace, 1954, holds that it was finally and ultimately in Adam's power not to sin. Only so, he holds, can we hold to any genuinely Christian faith which preserves man from sheer determinism. Such a position clearly contradicts Scripture, such verses as Ephesians 1, 4, and 5, and denies that, before the foundation of the world, we were predestined unto salvation. It would reduce God to playing a situation ethics type of game, reacting to man rather than creating and governing man. Moreover, to speak then of free will is wrong on several accounts, among other reasons. First, men like Da'ani insist on viewing man's freedom in an absolute sense. But man is a creature, and his freedom is a creaturely and limited freedom. Man does not choose his own nature, time and place of birth, sex, aptitudes, or anything else in this direction, because he is a creature, not God. And not the first cause. Man's freedom is a limited, derivative, and secondary freedom. Man's freedom is the freedom to be the man God created him to be, not the freedom to be a god. Moreover, his creaturely freedom differs in terms of his estate. For example, the states of innocence, the fall, grace, and glory each gives man a differing form of creaturely freedom. Second, free will cannot exist in a vacuum. If the sovereign god of scripture be denied, the alternative is a world of chance and meaningless events in which freedom has no meaning. In the Greco-Roman world of the early church, the pagan thinkers who affirmed the free will of man against the church fathers also ended up with no freedom at all. In their universe, as C. N. Cochran's Christianity and Classical Culture makes evident, freedom could not exist. The forces of the environment, hostile, fortuitous, and alien to man, overwhelmed man. Freedom cannot exist in a world of chance and anarchy. Freedom presupposes planned movement in an orderly and purposeful world. Third, we have here two alien views of possibility. 
Those who oppose the sovereignty of God insist that possibility means simply a vast, meaningless, undirected, and fortuitous realm of erupting events. For example, a universe of chance. They are insistent that possibility be linked with chance, even though such a concept of possibility reduces history and the universe to chaos. Possibility thus becomes the product of accident rather than necessity. The mentality of the gambler is a faith in the sovereignty of accident and chance. The mathematical odds against him are meaningless. In fact, the long shot appeals to him most because, believing as he does in chance, he must affirm the result which best expresses the idea of chance. Reasoning with him on the facts of the matter will not work, because reason is ineffectual where the faith is not in reason, but in chance. On the other hand, for a Christian, possibility is not linked with chance, but with necessity, and both possibility and necessity are inseparable from the decree of God. No possibility exists outside of God's decree, because God is God, He is the source of all possibility, and nothing can alter or delay His decree. Thus, the question about Adam and the possibility of Adam's continued innocence is invalid and immoral. It presupposes something other than God as ultimate, namely, chance. The foundation of all systematic theology must be not abstract nor speculative theology, but biblical theology and the sovereign God of Scripture. Anything else gives us finally another religion. Section 8. Systematics and Proof On May 2, 1977, television viewers had an opportunity to see the film The Search for Noah's Ark. The producers of the film had as their intention the presentation of the evidences for the historicity of the biblical account in order to convince the unbelieving of the truth of Scripture. On the following morning, in a barbershop in Angels Camp, California, two or three men discussed the film. They were conservative Americans, with an old-fashioned American and Christian rearing, but without faith. They were agreed that the film proved that Noah's Ark is actually on Mount Ararat, and that the story of Noah was in some sense true. Did this convince them that the Bible is true, and that the God of Scripture is the living and sovereign God? Far from it. Rather, it convinced them that scientists, like Orthodox Christians, are trying to force a rigid system onto the universe, and thus will not allow for the reality of a vast realm of mysterious and chance events. Their conclusion was very simple. If Noah's Ark is true, so are flying saucers. Having begun with the premise of a universe of chance, with all factuality a product of chance, the evidence for Noah's Ark was for them a telling evidence for their own presuppositions. I thought, as I talked with the barber, that no more telling illustration of the truth of Dr. Cornelius Van Til's apologetics can be imagined, unless we begin with the sovereign and predestinating God of Scripture, who is the creator and determiner of all things. We cannot have any conclusion which will see the facts of Scripture as God created, God ordained, and God governed facts. For all who begin with alien presuppositions, the facts of Scripture will be either myths or else evidences of a universe of chance. Their reality as facts will be as brute factuality, not God-interpreted factuality. A few years ago, I clashed with a university professor whose work is exclusively with graduate students and whose reputation is international as a scholar. He became more than a little angry at my statement that the universe is totally rational because the absolutely rational God stands behind it and is the creator and predestinator of it. The universe, he insisted, has only, quote, a thin edge of rationality, end quote, man, 
and is apart from man nothing but irrationality and chance. Again, I was reminded of Van Til, who writes, quote, The modern man is in the first place a rationalist. All non-Christians are rationalists. As descendants of Adam, their covenant-breaking representative, Romans 5.12, every man refuses to submit his mind in the way of obedience to the mind of God. He undertakes to interpret the nature of reality in terms of himself as the final reference point. But to be a rationalist, man must also be an irrationalist. Man obviously cannot legislate by logic for reality. Unwilling to admit that God has determined the law of reality, man, by implication, attributes all power to chance. As a rationalist, he says that only that is possible which he can logically grasp in exhaustive fashion. As an irrationalist, he says that since he cannot logically grasp the whole of reality, and really cannot legislate for existence at all, it is chance that rules supreme. End quote. The meaning of man's revolt against God, his original and basic sin, is his will to be his own God, determining good and evil for himself. Genesis 3 5. The implication of this is that man, in order to establish himself as God, and as the source of meaning and interpretation, is reduced to legislating all meaning out of the universe in order to establish himself as God. Only by emptying the universe of all meaning can man then declare himself to be the determiner and source of meaning. The world of man alone provides a thin edge of rationality in the universe. The world of man, however, gives us then a world of competing gods, and we have the bloody horrors of the 20th century, the wars of the would-be gods. Legislating all meaning apart from man out of the universe means exactly that. Nietzsche demanded a world beyond good and evil. Dewey, as educator, called for a world beyond grading, beyond truth and error. Walter Kaufman has called for a world beyond guilt and justice. No criterion, law, norm, or standard beyond the man-god can be allowed to exist. Van Til has pointed out that, quote, There must be absolute truth if there is to be even the possibility of error. End quote. If we deny that absolute and sovereign truth, and if we allow even an atom to exist in independence from it, then we have denied the sovereignty of God and created a realm of escape from good and evil, truth and error, and from guilt and justice. And if an atom of matter, or a single moment of time, can escape from, or step out from under, the absolute decree and government of the triune God, then all things else can readily do the same. To cite Van Til again, quote, Unless we presuppose the doctrine of temporal creation and the complete control of all things in the universe by the providence of God, God is confronted by that about which he cannot legislate by means of his thought. In particular, since on the idealist assumption man is not created by God, the mind of man can initiate that which is new and unpredictable by God. God will wonder and hope that the laws of logic will somehow control reality, but he cannot assure the fact that they will. These laws are then independent of his nature. End quote. Systematic theology is thus impossible unless we begin first with the absolute predestination of the sovereign and ontological trinity, and second, the doctrine of creation. Only so is God the Lord. Only then can we declare that there is a system, a law, and a structure to all things. The choice is not between some law intermingled with the doctrine of chance, miscalled freedom, on the one hand, and the doctrines of rigid Calvinism on the other, but simply between God and chance. If an iota of chance is allowed into the universe, then God's sovereignty is denied, and God is not God. Moreover, we cannot allow the apostate definition of freedom and free will to stand. 
For men in revolt against God, language is an instrument of warfare, to be used in the war against God. Freedom is therefore defined as correlative to chance. It is held to mean independence from structure and law, and is in essence unpredictability. The meaning of freedom, thus, is made identical with insanity, but this does not describe it adequately, because insanity has a structure and pattern to it, and the various forms of insanity are classified and named. Freedom is equated with a radical independence from all law and compulsion, but such freedom does not exist, because the universe is not a world of chance, nor are all events in total isolation from all other events. Brute and isolated factuality does not exist. Every person, thing, or event has in the background a vast complex of causes, influences, conditioning factors, and forces which have produced that person, thing, moment, or event. Its freedom is to be what it is, and what God ordained it to be. Compulsion is that which interferes with the matrix of convergent causes. I am a servant of God, and whatever interferes with my calling, or tries to prevent it, is compulsion to me. I am predestined by God, and therein is my freedom. I am not under nature, nor am I the creator of man. If a tyrant seeks to prevent me or hinder me in my obedience to the Lord, that is compulsion, and it is tyranny. Tyranny means, in origin, rule, apart from God's law. God's law, in the form of both predestination and biblical law, is to me freedom. Not only do truth and error have meaning because God is the absolute truth and the sovereign and predestinating Lord, but also freedom and slavery have meaning only because God's sovereignty is the source of all meaning and prediction. Apart from the sovereign God of Scripture, no meaning and no system is possible. Systematic theology thus alone gives us any ground for faith, God, life, and meaning. Apart from Him, we have nothing and can prove nothing. Apart from the sovereign God of Scripture as our presupposition, the search for Noah's Ark readily becomes a proof of chance and of flying saucers. The end of all non-systematic apologetics is absurdity. Section 9. Practical Systematics Every man's life is governed by an implicit systematic theology, by certain presuppositions which form a coherent whole and govern his thoughts in life. I have, over the years, worked and talked with a great variety of peoples of differing races, American Indians, Negroes, Europeans, Asiatics, Latin Americans, North Americans, and others. It is the great myth of the modern intellectual that only he is capable of intelligent, logical thinking. Implicit in his arrogant faith is the assumption that wisdom began with him and his kind. Apart from the intellectual, it is held, and before him, men were and are primitives, and their thinking is mythical and prelogical. One can counter by pointing out that no greater myths have ever been created by the mind of man than those of modern man. Some of these myths are evolution, the natural goodness of man, or at worst, his neutral nature, and the myths of origins and of history this faith leads to. Modern anthropology and its myths concerning man's nature in society, the myth of salvation through politics and education, and much, much more. The intellectuals to the contrary, men are everywhere logical and systematic in their thinking. The problem lies not in their thinking, but in their presuppositions. Our Lord declares, Every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. Wherefore, by their fruit ye shall know them. Matthew 7, 17-20 What our Lord insists on is the unity of man's being. A good, tree cannot bear, a good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. 
Matthew 7:18. Pastors and psychologists are all too busy trying to convince us that this logical sequence is not true, that a good tree can, in fact, produce evil fruit, or that men can gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles, Matthew 7:16. A fig tree may produce a light crop, but it will not produce thistles, nor will it bear any other fruit than its own. Creation as God made it was very good, Genesis 1.31. Because of sin, it became fallen. By virtue of Christ's redemption, it is being restored. Its goal is an eternal and glorious state. Each of its fourfold estates, man and the creation can never depart from God's sovereign purpose. The Creator is a unity. God is one. In each estate, man manifests a systematics which is either a declaration of God's sovereign word and purpose, or is a manifestation of man's imitation of God. The redeemed man can sin, hamartia, for example, miss or fall short of the mark, but he is still aiming at and moving toward that mark. He is not guilty of anomia, lawlessness, and cannot commit this sin if he is regenerate. If, however, he is persistently missing the mark, it means that he is actually not regenerate, but lawless, anti-law. In 1 John 3.4, we are told that, Whosoever soever committeth sin, for example, practices and abides in sin, hamartian, continually, transgresseth also the law, anomian. For sin, the continual practice of sin, hamartia, is the transgression of the law, is lawlessness, anomia. Atheistic religion fathers a polytheistic psychology. The polytheism of Greece led to a dualistic and triparate psychology of man. Practically, this meant that Socrates could be regarded as a man of virtue, although a homosexual. Such a judgment is impossible from a biblical perspective. Man does not have a being of, di of diverse origins held together by a paradoxical tension. In Greek thought, man has in him two differing kinds of being, form, or idea, mind, spirit, on the one hand, and matter, on the other. Each has its own entelechy, its own nature and destiny. In addition, for Greek thought, man is subject to a variety of forces and influences, astronomical and terrestrial, which also shape his life and character. As a result, a man could do evil and still be good at heart. A radical division was possible between man's faith and life, his ideas and actions, his moral principles and his immoral practice. Because of this disparity of nature, man could not be effectively judged. The criminal in act could be a saint at heart. The influence of this Greek and polytheistic psychology is still dominant in the life and spirituality of the church. Its practical effect is to turn Christianity into a polytheistic cult. It involves a radical denial of the doctrine of creation, and in church circles we can see that, where the doctrine of creation is underestimated, neglected, or bypassed, psychology takes precedence over all else in preaching. Understanding man, especially sinful man, becomes a problem. Instead of the simple test of God's law, as our Lord requires it in Matthew 7, 15-20, we have instead the conversion of man into a mystery who cannot be judged. He is a product of his environment. He is a grand mixture of good and evil. He is both saint and devil, and so on. He is everything except a creature who is either a covenant keeper or a covenant breaker. The logic of polytheism, its systematics, creates a view of man which requires the radical destruction of the Christian perspective. An education rooted in evolutionary theory as statist education is, will produce an alien world and life view. Thus, in one sense, only biblical faith can have a systematic theology, 
because it alone sets forth the sovereign and omnipotent God, whose rule and power are total. All creation is a unity, because He is a unity. All logic, material things, and all things else have the coherence of His creation, decree, and purpose. Every departure therefrom is suicidal. Proverbs 8.36 Only biblical religion can present the systematics and unity of all creation, because it alone is the word of the triune God, who is Lord over all. Thus, no other religion or philosophy can develop a valid systematics, and all must, in the long run, deny the validity of systematics. Man, however, is created in the image of God. He may consciously affirm an anti-God faith. He may deny the possibility of systematics and call it an illusion. He will, all the same, inescapably act in terms of the systematics and logic of his unbelief. He cannot say, because of his polytheism, that one segment of life has meaning and another none. He cannot close the door to any area of his life and keep out the dark from his supposedly lighted closet. The logic of his unbelief permeates the totality of his life. The image of God in man answers to the reality of God, his decree and his creation purpose. St. Paul makes this clear in Romans 1, 17-20. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who hold the truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifested in them. For God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. First, St. Paul makes clear that all men know God. They know the truth of God and the invisible things of Him, as they are created in God's image, and because their own being, as is all creation, is revelational of God. The knowledge of God is inescapable knowledge. Second, men hold the truth in unrighteousness. They suppress or misapply it, because they are determined not to acknowledge or to know God. Their problem is sin, not a lack of knowledge. As a result, the framework of faith, its systematics, is held by men in unrighteousness. It is misappropriated and misapplied. Third, because men everywhere have this inescapable knowledge of God, their problem is not unbelief in the sense of an inability to believe intellectually, but rather unbelief as a moral resistance to an obvious and overwhelming fact. All men know the truth of God's revelations. The devils also believe and tremble, James 2.19. The unregenerate, however, resist God and suppress the knowledge of God, because they are determined to be themselves gods, Genesis 3.5. Thus, while all men everywhere know the truth of God, they, re they refuse to acknowledge God. Their unbelief in God is an insistence on their own ultimacy. Unbelief in this sense is not lack of knowledge, but moral warfare and revolt against the sovereign God. Fourth, this means that Paul, when he declares, the just shall live by faith, and Habakkuk earlier, Habakkuk 2.4, means something more than mere belief. Faith is saying amen to God. It is bowing down to His sovereignty and lordship, and it is living by God's decree and providence, not by man's. Faith, thus, is saying amen to God's systematics, and denying our own as sin and as a pretentious impossibility. Man's systematics is a ladder resting on nothing and reaching out into a cosmic void. But man, created in God's image, cannot escape the mandate of that image. His entire life should be a pilgrimage, and a calling to develop the implications of the earth in terms of knowledge, righteousness, holiness, and dominion under God, 
to move toward that city which hath foundation, whose builder and maker is God. Hebrews 11.10 The Bible provides man with the blueprint for that city in its law. The systematics or building plan is entirely of the Lord. Man cannot abandon the necessity Man cannot abandon the necessity for that city. It is a God-created, God-ordained necessity. In his sin, however, man perverts that calling. He substitutes his own pseudo-systematics and declares, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower, whose top may reach unto heaven. Genesis 11.4 But the broken systematics of man has no foundation in reality. It has no metaphysical and moral roots and is thus an illusion. Systematic theology is not an attempt to systematize scattered ideas or truths found in Scripture, but is rather a setting forth of the inescapable unity of God's being, His revelation and His purpose. A false systematics sees the need for a synthesis of scattered and vague ideas. In the systematics of unbelief, a few facts are rescued out of an ocean of brute factuality to provide a practical or existential logic and system for living. True systematics presents the inescapable unity, order, and design of God's being and creation. In the false systematics we can be told, as some lecturers have done, that biblical eschatology gives us various, diverse, and random perspectives, so that we cannot speak of biblical eschatology, but must rather speak of biblical eschatologies. The unity and coherence of Scripture is denied in favor of a new principle of unity and coherence, man. Sartre denies the unconscious and holds to the self-consciousness and self-coherence of man. The implication of such a position is that the world is incoherent, and God, if he exists, is also incoherent. To cohere is to stick or hold firmly together. To be logically coherent, God is coherent and infallible. Man, St. Paul makes clear, is morally incoherent. He knows God but denies God because man is in rebellion against God. Man suppresses the truth of God, which he knows in every atom of his being, and then tries to reproduce the systematics of that inescapable knowledge in terms of his own being rather than in terms of God. Only biblical theology can set forth a true systematics. But every humanistic theology will work to recreate a new systematics out of man's being. When men, like Haratunian, attack the idea of a systematic theology, It is simply an attack on the systematic theology of the God of Scripture. Implicit in all such attacks, in a summons, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower, whose top may reach unto heaven. Genesis 11.4 Theirs is a systematics of nothing, and its destiny is confusion. Genesis 11.7-9